All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Welcome back to Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And on this episode, we are going to be talking about the 1970 Best Picture winner, Patton. The biopic, biopic, did we ever figure what that word was, John? I don't think we did. But anyways, the 1970 biopic, that one Best Picture, which starred George C. Scott and Carl Malden, portraying the notorious, the notable, I don't know, John, how do we feel about Patton? We'll find out at the end of this uh, podcast about uh, General George S. Patton during World War II. And uh, to start off the podcast, John, we're going to kind of do our own Mystery Science Theater uh, reacting to the very famous scene of uh, Patton giving one of his uh, speeches in front of the American flag. John, is there anything you want to say before we have our first like reaction? We're like re- reaction content creators now. Very cool and hip. <laughs> no, let's roll right into it and hear what Patton has to say to his troops. So I, I want to first say, as we're getting into the first minute here, that we never see the audience, which is very interesting. It's like we're the audience of it, John. Exactly. But it's like you could still have a little shot reverse shot to get a good feeling of who they are, what they look like, how big the crowd is, you know? Yeah, but he's like talking like directly to us. Yeah, I get what they're doing. I get what they're doing. Which I think is like the... Like, I think the movie is very intentionally being like, you, the audience, figure out how you feel about Patton. Yeah, exactly. And now they're showing off all his, like, medals, how decorated he was, four-star general. I love the close-up shots into his eyes and the rings and his gun and ivory handle, of course, you know. His, uh, the rings are so sick. You see that? Just like the most excessive amount of medals so like why why does anyone remember? need that many medals that no bastard ever won you see war the job. by dying <laughs> for his country <laughs> you want it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country that's not true man <laughs> All this stuff you've heard about America not wanting to fight, wanting Maybe to stay out true. of the war, is a lot of horse dung. Very true. Very sad. And Americans true. traditionally love to fight. All real Americans love the sting of battle. When you were kids, you all admired <laughs> the champion marbles, <laughs> the fastest runner, big league ball players, the toughest boxers. Americans love a winner and will not tolerate a loser. Americans play to win all the time. I wouldn't give a hoot in hell for a man who lost and laughed. That's why Americans have never lost and will never lose a war. Because so it's funny because like, this whole movie is about Patton's like, failures almost. And he's made out to be like a loser. And we're supposed to like adore him by the end of this movie. He's a team. 
It lives, eats, sleeps, fights as a team. This individuality stuff is a bunch of crap. The bilious bastards who wrote that stuff about individuality for the Saturday Evening Post don't know anything more about real battle than they do about fornicating. Now, we have the finest food and equipment, the best spirit, and the best men in the world. You know, by <laughs> God, I actually pity <laughs> those poor bastards we're going up against. By God, I do. We're not just going to shoot the bastards. We're going to cut out their living guts and use them to grease the treads of our tanks. We're going to murder those lousy Hun bastards by the bushel. Now, some of you boys, I know, are wondering whether or not you'll chicken out under fire. Don't worry Jesus about it. Jesus Christ. <laughs> right? Yes. I can assure you that by you the will bushel. all do your duty. The Nazis are the enemy. Wade into them. Spill their blood. Shoot them in the belly. When you put your hand into a bunch of goo that a moment before was your best friend's face, you know what to do. Now, there's another thing I want you to remember. I love that line. <laughs> I don't want to get any messages. Face, John, when your face is just a bunch of goo, I you know exactly what to do. Let the Let's take care that. of my goo and bring them home. We are advancing constantly, and we're not bring interested in home. holding on to anything <laughs> except the enemy. We're going to hold on to him by the nose, and we're going to kick him in the ass. We're going to kick the hell out of him all the time, and we're going to go through him like crap through a goose. <laughs> like crap through a goose. <laughs> this is Coppola at his There's one finest. thing <laughs> that you men will be able to say when you get back home. And you may thank God for it. Thirty years from now, when you're sitting around your fireside with your grandson on your knee, and he asks you, what did you do in the great World War II? You won't have to say, well, I shoveled shit in Louisiana. All right, now you sons of bitches, you know how I feel. Well, I will be proud to lead you wonderful guys into battle anytime, anywhere. That's all. So I think the ending of that is like incredibly interesting because he talks about, you know, what are you going to do when you go home? Grandchildren, like, what do you do during World War II? Well, it sure, sure wasn't shoveling shit in Louisiana. Patent for a lot of what we see in this movie is taking, it's doing anything from afar. Uh, you don't really ever see him like directly commanding his troops. It's very just like in between type of stuff. Like, the stuff in between like we see a war but we see it from so far away so big picture so it's like what did you do during the war patent like you used and that and that idea keeps on coming up where his soldiers kind of criticize him 
because there's a line later on where they called him, oh, there's old blood and guts, which was Patton's nickname. And then a soldier says, yeah, his guts are blood. So it's like Patton, I think that one of the interesting things this movie tries to do in this narrative and idea tries to bring forth is that how great was Patton when he was just standing from afar saying all this? Yeah, maybe at one point he was a great soldier, but we like, we glorify these generals and really they're just pawns and these schemers uh, for, you know, this war and they use regular people, ordinary Americans to fight these battles, which this movie, you can look at it very, and it's very anti-war in that regard with how it doesn't show the true story of the people. It just shows the decision makers um, within the war. So with that last line of like, oh, well, what did I do in the war? Well, what did you do in the war, Patton? And I guess that's also what this movie does reveal, and it shows like what he did do for America in the war. And I think that's what's so interesting about this movie is that it can be looked at in different ways. And almost like politics, you can look at this film as... In a way, I, we can open that conversation up of talking about whether there is propaganda in this film and how this film kind of like pushes the American rah-rah, you know, fight for your life, fight for your country no matter what, especially in the middle of Vietnam War, which is happening right now as we speak in 1971 and 70, all the way up to 74, I think, is the end of the war. So it's it's on America's minds that we're in a war when this movie comes out. And we have him talking and almost it feels like, as you said, directly talking to us as the audience, almost like a rally speech to get us excited as the audience of almost to accept war and, and kind of push forward. I even heard, heard someone talk about how they use Patton's theme as an entrance for the military a lot of the times as, you know, men going off to war. I think they even used it in Desert Storm as they were like getting to approach uh, the Middle East, they were like playing that for their troops as they like came into their base in the Middle East. So there is a lot of connection to this film on both sides. I think you could look at this film on the one hand of being kind of propaganda for the United States and pushing our military general agenda. But also, like you described, this movie can also be looked at as like an anti-war film as people who are really in control have no really stakes. You know, they're not really at risk for their life. They're making huge decisions that you know, allow thousands of men and women just to die for no reason. And I think that's why the core of this film is really the relationship between George S. Patton and the other general, General Omar N. Bradley, who's played by Carl Malden. And it's really the heart of the film in terms of the two characters kind of interacting with each other and getting to know each other. But I wanted to rewind back since we just went over the very first opening moment, which is probably the most iconic part of this entire movie. I wanted to ask you, Ben, off the top of listening to that, what kind of your impression of that was as a kid? Like, did you see that that image of him standing in front of the flag? Because I know personally, I've seen that opening before. I definitely haven't seen this whole movie before, you know, this past couple of weeks where I watched it a couple of times. But I remember as a kid, this just being an image, an iconic image of cinema of Patton standing there in front of the flag. And I think I must have watched the opening of the movie, maybe on like Turner Classic Movies or something like that as a kid because my dad was watching it. So I always knew it was a very significant part of cinema. I just didn't really understand what the movie itself was. It, it kind of opened this mystery box for me, which was like, what is this movie? Like in my mind as a kid, I just thought the entire movie was that like Patton coming out and just like talking to you. 
So, Ben, what did you think of that opening? And have you seen that as a kid or did you know that like iconic symbol of cinema? So I guess I didn't know it, but I was trying to think of like, because I didn't watch that. There's no way I watched like that whole scene specifically as a kid. Maybe I saw an image of it. Maybe I saw a clip of it, but never that whole thing. And, and I would not have understood it. But now actually thinking about it, where did I first see it and where, why does it stick so much in my head? And John, this may be why too, but it is in Space Jam. Bugs Bunny <laughs> does a little recreation of it in yes. Space Jam. So absolutely um, maybe maybe that's why it sticks so much in, He's in get our the, heads especially the tunes ready for battle on the basketball court of course absolutely <laughs> i i think it's a, an appropriate way to do it you throw the big flag in the back put in the military costume and everything um yeah it's very iconic and i think that that's why we wanted to play the whole thing it's kind of it's a really hard scene just to well i should say it's hard it's, it's kind of easy from an aesthetic standpoint because it's just him in front of the flag very minimal shot changes and it's just to all be about American exceptionalism, but his words are there's a lot of like hip, hip, hypocrisy. Why well, couldn't get that word hypocrisy in it? But also a lot of inspiration in it as well. There's he's a very smart guy, very well spoken, but it's like, do you really believe this? This is really true. Like how he really feels about America. Should we be feeling this sort of pride and and this like hoorah type of attitude? Um, I think it's a hard question. I think it depends on the person you ask how they feel. And, you know, I, I think this movie is as pro-war as it is anti-war. It, it does both pretty well and balances both. I don't think it has a true message besides asking you to wonder, who is this guy Patton? Why do we care about him? Should we glorify him as much as we do? Um, because what did he do to help end the war? And, and he did a lot. Um, but did he do it the right ways? There's a, and there's a lot of other controversy surrounding him. So I think that's kind of it, though, for the open. I mean, this open is so strong. It's kind of like the highlight of the movie. And I think that's kind of also maybe the downfall of this movie, John. So there's a lot of questions, lots to unpack. But my main question to you is, is Patton worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1970? The World War II phase of the career of the controversial American general, George S. Patton. General George S. Patton addresses an unseen audience of American troops, emphasizing the importance Americans place upon victorious role models, as well as his own demands that his men defeat the enemy by working and fighting as a team. In his first encounter with the German Africa Corps at Kasserine, the second corps is humiliated in defeat by General Erwin Rommel, whom Patton places in high regard as a well-respected rival. As a consequence, Patton is placed in command of the second corps and immediately begins instilling discipline amongst his untested troops. Alongside the poor condition of American soldiers in the second corps, Patton also identifies the stubbornness of his British counterpart, General Bernard Montgomery, constantly undermines American forces in order to monopolize the war glory. Patton's chance to prove his worth comes at the subsequent Battle of El Gutter, where Patton defeats the advancing German forces. The eventual Allied victory in North Africa prompts both Patton and Montgomery to come up with the, com with the competing plans for the Sicily invasion. Patton's plan, drawn from reference to the 
Peloponnesian War highlights the strategic importance of Syracuse. If it fell to an occupying force, the Italians would surely withdraw. Patton proposes that Montgomery captures Syracuse, whereas he will land near Palermo, then capture Messina to cut off the withdrawal. Though the plan initially impresses General Alexander, to whom Patton and Montgomery report, General Eisenhower turns it down in favor of Montgomery's more cautious plan that the two armies land side by side in the southeast, essentially relegating Patton to guarding the left flank of the British advance. The invasion proceeds, though upon the liberation of Syracuse, the Italians flee to mainland Italy but leave behind a rear guard which bogs down the British and American forces. Angered by the lack of progress being made, Patton thrusts west and captures Palermo, before beating Montgomery to Messina. Patton's blunt aggression sits poorly with his subordinates Omar Bradley and Lucian Truscott. During a visit to a field hospital, Patton notices a soldier crying out of shell shock. Surmising that the soldier isn't actually physically injured, Patton slaps the soldier and threatens to shoot him for his cowardice and demands he return to the front line. Eisenhower demands Patton apologize to his entire command for the altercation. Though Patton obliges, he is stunned to find out that Bradley, not he, has been given command of the American forces pre preparing for the invasion of France. With the invasion of Normandy due to start, Patton is placed in charge of the fictional 1st United States Army Group as a decoy in London, the Allied consensus believing that his presence in England will tell the Germans that he will lead the invasion of Europe. At a war drive in Nutsford, Patton openly remarks that the post-war world will be dominated by British and American influence, seen as a slight to the Soviet Union. Though Patton objects to having done anything wrong, the situation has already spiraled from his control. The decision to send him home or keep him in England rests upon General George Marshall. Though he is not present during the D-Day landings, Patton is given command of the Third Army by General Bradley, now his, now his superior. Under Patton's leadership, the Third Army sweeps brilliantly across France, but is unexpectedly brought to a halt when the supplies are diverted to Montgomery's ambitious Operation Market Garden. During the Battle of the Bulge, Patton devises a plan to relieve the trapped 101st Airborne Division in Bastogne, which he does before smashing through the Siegfried Line and into Germany. Germany eventually capitulates, though Patton's outspokenness lands him in trouble once again when he compares American politics to Nazism. Though he loses his command once again, Patton is kept on to see the rebuilding of Germany in post-war period. In a final scene, Patton is seen walking Willie, his bull terrier. Patton's voice is heard saying, and Now I'm going to try Patton's voice. I have not practiced this at all. <laughs> For over a thousand years, Roman conquerors, returning from the wars, enjoyed the honor of triumph, a tumultuous parade. In the procession came trumpeters and musicians and strange animals from the conquered territories, together with the carts laden with treasure and captured amarants. The conqueror rode into the triumphal chariot, the day's prisoners walking in the chains before him. Sometimes his children, robed in white, stood with him in the chariot or rode the trace horses. A slave stood behind the conqueror, holding a golden crown and whispering in his ear a warning that all glory is fleeting. Very nice. Very nice. Thank you. Clap for me. Clap for me. Thank you. <laughs> I'm clapping. I'm clapping. 
Patton was directed by Franklin J. Schaffner. Written by Francis Ford Coppola, Edmund H. North, based on the materials from Patton, An Ordeal and Triumph from Ladislas Farago, and based on the materials from A Soldier's Story by Omar N. Bradley. Produced by Frank McCarthy. Music by Jerry Goldsmith. Cinematography by Fred J. Conacamp and Russ Meyer. Film editing by Hugh S. Fowler. Casting by Michael McLean. And art direction by Yuri McCleary and Gil Perondo. Patton starred George C. Scott as Lieutenant General George S. Patton. Carl Malden as Lieutenant General Omar N. Bradley. David Bauer as Lieutenant General Harry Buford. John Duchetti as Major General Lucian Truscott. Michael Strong as Brigadier General Hobart Carver. Peter Barkworth as Colonel John Wilkin. And Siegfried Roik as Captain Oscar Steiger. Ooh. So, the opening scene of Patton we already hit on and talked about. And to me, John, this is the biggest mistake the film makes. Um, <laughs> so, looking at into some research... Uh, so George C. Scott, he initially refused to film that speech in front of the flag uh, when he learned that it would be at the beginning of the film, and he felt the rest of, the, of his performance would not live up to that scene. But the director, Franklin Schaffner, lied to Scott and told him that the scene would be put at the end <laughs> of the film, which would have been really nice to have. Like, I think if the movie started with the whole like um, Northern Africa establishing himself like taking over you kind of get a little like you're you you meet Patton one of the things that he does that is kind of like very skeevy and like kind of shows his power hungriness is the fact that he that he has his like men give him the three stars when um and Bradley I think it's Bradley points out that 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 the senate or congress has to approve it first (laughs) <laughs> and he's already just like, ah, I'm just going to give myself the three stars before they do that. And I think if they showed that first, it would have been like, oh, wait a second. Who is this Patton? And then in the middle of the movie, having that speech, I think would have added a little more oomph to his character. Would it, it wouldn't have felt so like, oh, dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. Just, there's so many scenes of dialogue and him like talking about history and why we need to fight, why we need to do this, but never progresses the actual story. And I think it might have given more emotion and more energy to his character if it was in the middle of the movie, that opening scene. Yeah, I, I understand why you feel that way. In terms of like the overall plotting, I think it makes a little more sense. I just think in terms of like grabbing the audience right away, you know, it's such a great scene to like hook you into who this character is and define who Patton is, the way he sees the war, the way he sees his troops, the way he sees the enemy, you know. It's a great way to like introduce us and hook us right away into this character. And while, yes, we could build up to it, I actually do enjoy that it's in the very beginning because I think I love a good opener that kind of like hooks you and brings you right into a story and it makes you interested. You know, you see this opening and you're like, wow, okay, this guy is saying this to his troops, talking about the enemies, but how does he actually act when he's in war and and when it comes to his front line and directly into his face and then it's like, let's carry on into this film and see what he's actually like when it comes to being on the front line or 
really he's never on the front line that's kind of the story that we have here but i do also agree with you that this film is heavily just relies on so much dialogue relies on so much history and i think that got us talking you know we don't talk too much about how we feel about the film before recording here we like to kind of jump in and surprise each other and see where the conversation goes but sometimes you know we'll occasionally be like hey how how do you think of it what do you think of it and ben and i both had a really similar response and i didn't really know this until right before we started is that we both feel that Patton would be overall and correct me if i'm wrong or you feel different overall Patton would just be i think a better overall experience if i knew a lot more about world war ii history if i knew very vividly and detailed notes of exactly how everything went down because I don't think the film handles the transitions that well from scene to scene in terms of the overall chunks of scenes in terms of the different locations that we are in Africa and then Italy and then Germany and the cold you know it transitioned us through a lot of World War II over almost the entire four or five years of the war but it doesn't do the best job of like doing that smoothly and transitioning to us uh, throughout the story of Patton, I think there's a lot here that could be expa- expanded on, especially from the point of view that someone doesn't know that much about World War II. I mean, I loved learning about it and seeing the history and watching some of the films, but there is so much history, and even Patton himself tries to express to us like what's happening, where they are in the war, and the film tries to do its best. But I think it gets really muddy in the overall structure of the film because it's hard to follow exactly. And I goofed around with Ben before this that, you know, if this was made today or in the past 20, 25 years, we would have these big grand transitions between these scenes where you're seeing the front line. They're showing like CGI, basically, you know, different arrows pointing, showing the allies axis fighting and pushing each other around the battlefield, whatever it may be. But instead, since it's 1970, we're having you know, the military groups, the generals on both sides, just looking down at a battlefield, moving arrows, moving little things around the battlefield. So I think that's a good summary of like describing how this movie feels at times. Like you're looking down at a big board of risk almost. And you're like watching these people talk about this board of risk and how they're going to win the game of risk overall, which is interesting. But I think we both agree that the best war films are usually on the ground, you know, on the front line with a group of men with the captain with his group of men you know there's something so like the film really keeps you from afar and that's definitely intentional because it's about Patton but anyway Ben what did you think overall of the plotting the structure that I kind of described and uh, do you agree with me do you think it's a it's a little messy and hard to follow at times yeah I think it's only messy because and this is really like a technical detail and kind of its own fault is that the film is mostly uh, done in Spain. It was mostly Spain was doubled as France, North Africa, Germany, and you can kind of get away with that sometimes. But when it's supposed to be multiple different, you know, country, and they they did go to some historical places, I you know, but still at the same time they doubled a lot of the land and a lot of landscape for different countries. And when it all starts to mishmash and look the same, you're like, wait a second, where are we supposed to be? What year is it supposed to be? How much how much time has there been in between and the film doesn't establish that enough. And actually, um, I found a really great excerpt from Pauline Kael, um, who talked about Patton. And um, she wrote this, Patton runs almost three hours, and there's not a single lyrical moment, which I completely agree with. There's not anything flowery or... Like, there's a lot of, like, interesting things that Patton says, and that speech is very interesting. The last... The ending speech is, like, there's a lot to break down there. It's actually very 
it's like hauntingly beautiful and like very poetic <laughs> but <laughs> not my rendition not, like, <laughs> it's it's not there's like yeah it's just like the music is not there the umph is not there so she continues to say the figure of general george Patton, played by george c scott is a pop hero but visually the movie is in a style that might be described as imperial i definitely agree to that this movie looks like a bunch of stormtroopers made it uh it does not really look quite like any other movie and that in itself is an achievement though not necessarily an aesthetic one the movie was shot in 70 millimeter and in dimension quote 150 uh, i don't know exactly what that means but technically the movie is awesomely impressive uh, directed by Schaffner, and it looks a little like the early huge landscapes in his Planet of the Apes movie, which came out before this. Uh, the images typically are incredibly long, wide shots taking in vast areas, with the human figures dwarfed by the terrains, and with more compositional use of sky than I've ever seen in a movie. Uh, there's so much land and air, and it's so clear that we seem to be looking at Patton from God's point of view. I think that's actually a very great point that Pauline Kale makes is that you know, Patton talks a lot about like God and, and his fleeting glory and what and what man's purposes of this world and it feels very grand and big and you're looking at it from I guess a God's eye point of view. She continues to say uh, that when Patton is in an interior, that the interior is usually that of a castle with doors opening into rooms beyond rooms and in apparent infinity, and one perceives necessity for this, uh, the the need to keep the interiors consistent with the scale of the exteriors. Uh, landscapes are full of men the cast must surely run into the tens of thousands but they are all extras even the ones that should be important so it's actually funny when we were reading a cast before because in all honesty i just care about Patton and a little bit about bradley call malden's character everybody else is so like insignificant to the movie we barely get to know their names i mean we sort of know who was it mills you know or meeks william meeks is the guy that kind of helps Patton, the the black soldier that helps Patton in his uh, quarters. But otherwise, we don't know anyone else's names. It's very strange, and and it, I think the movie wants us to know all these people, but doesn't really take the time to establish them or differentiate, because there are so many times in the movie where Patton is reprimanded. And he's being reprimanded by like five different people in the movie. It's never the same one, and we never see an Eisenhower character, which I think is a little strange, unless Eisenhower and Patton never truly interacted face-to-face during the war which i might find hard to believe um so i don't even know why i got into this rant uh about (laughs) it but i want to talk about the point of view of the gods that you mentioned because that is really interesting and it's almost like i didn't when i watched it i had that same feeling but it wasn't almost like from god's point of view it was almost as if Patton is a god himself it almost reminded me in a way of this is so different in terms of tone of movie, what the movie is, but something like Clash of the Titans, which is about these gods talking about humanity, you know, what to do with them, how can we help humanity, should we even help humanity? It's almost like we're seeing these men, the generals in this case, talk about these people, these soldiers, and how they're using them as pawns, basically, for what they see as a greater good. So. I kind of almost looked at it as like that. And then the gods come down, much like you see in uh, Clash of the Titans, for instance, and they see, you know, humanity for what it is. And they see their decisions decisions, and what their decisions have caused and led to, you know, especially in the war for Patton in general. So it's, it's interesting because I really, really love the cinematography of this movie. I think it's, it is the best part, in my opinion, of the movie. The cinematography mixed with the incredible music of the film by Jerry Goldsmith. I think the score is unbelievable. It's really, really beautiful and and quite profound. 
And it's been carried on, especially in the military, as this like iconic military theme with the flutes and the drumming and really great. It does feel this like grand imperial man that they try to like build up with the music. And I really love the cinematography, like I was saying. It really does feel extremely wide. It makes sense that they shot it in seventy millimeter for how wide and vast these shots are and as well as the production design at moments it almost felt like they were trying to recreate like renaissance paintings in a way with the massive battlefields Patton and and maybe one of his other generals by his side just like standing looking over the shit show that was war you know and most of the film we don't really see the war happening on the front line we don't see it all in front of our face and the destruction the death we see a lot of the aftermath of it which in a way is is almost more disturbing that we see like the death of so many men and the way these men and their dead bodies are treated you know they're just like especially early on in the film you're seeing all these american soldiers just like scavenged from their pockets you know the locals are just stealing from the dead bodies but i really loved both of those elements i think they're the two favorite elements of this entire film is the cinematography and the sounds and really really loved it this would be a great movie just like throw on in the background for like some of the amazing vistas and shots he he does such a great job of showing these huge landscapes and this huge world that they build Um, but yeah that was definitely one of my favorite parts of the movie is the cinematography and the music but it's it's leading us to a point where I do feel like it's it. This movie would be benefited if I knew a lot about history. If like, in a way, this movie almost yep. feels like a historical textbook, where we're seeing like these little like moments of Patton's history and taking us through it. And it's not like it's so messy that you can't follow what's happening in the war. They do a good job of explaining, you know, kind of where we are, but it doesn't do enough to kind of visually explain what's happening because this film relies so much on the text and the dialogue that. It becomes so philosophical, you know, that the conversations that they're having and you kind of like forget what the plot is because there really isn't much of a plot because it's like a character study. And I don't really think we've had a film and correct me if I'm wrong, if you can think of anything that has been this much of a character study. You know, when you look at it, you could say uh, maybe Lawrence of Arabia is definitely a character study of, of who Lawrence is, but there's still so much plot in that movie you know there's so much happening there's a lot of changes there's a lot of changes not just for Lawrence and his character but the world around him and I feel like this movie is a little similar to Lawrence of Arabia as well but we really haven't had that strong of a character study you could maybe look at Marty as a character study as well or even Hamlet you know if we keep going further and further back um but the film really reminded me I think of a man for all seasons kind of fits into yeah. this too yeah, I think that's fair. That's totally fair, like a crisis of conscience. And, and that film is also really heavy in terms of dialogue, discussing, you know, should we do this decision? Should we go against the church? Should we go against the king? So that's a good connection, too. So there are, I feel like, a little similarities until, like, when we look back at our previous Best Picture winners and into some of the context and some of the feelings of this movie. I think I really came to the conclusion that this is just not my kind of film. And I think this podcast has really helped me kind of discover what movies I like over certain movies, which is so weird to say because I love really all movies, you know, and I I watched Patton and I was like, I appreciate that. But that just like was not entertaining at all. 
And yeah. that sounds mm-hmm. so harsh, but not every movie needs to be entertaining to that way. Sometimes movies can be entertaining while also being very educational. To me, it really felt like almost like a documentary, like a history documentary about Patton, which isn't a problem. It's not like a terrible thing that the movie does that, but it doesn't lead to the most satisfying experience. And it's not really what you expect from a movie about war. And I know it's because it's not what this movie is. It's trying to be different. It's trying to stand on its own. And I think it does that. It does stand on its own. But Ben, I've been rambling. I'll let you take over <laughs> and tell me what you think about some of the stuff I just mentioned. I, I mean, I kind of agree with all of it. There's nothing I really object to at all. I think of a a more modern comparison of, of how, you know, you were, well, Clash of the Titans is modern, but a different way of looking at it from a simpler standpoint is like the social network. This movie is really about like two guys and their interweavings between Bradley and Patton and how they've been interweaved without fit within without the war. Actually, I think this movie would be great as a play. You kind of remove all the fighting and the battles and these like, huge establishment shots, and it's just kind of a play about Patton yeah. being undermined the entire time. I think that would be like really fascinating, but this movie gets so lost because it's trying to do a character study. It's trying to um, interweave all these different storylines. It's trying to show the Germans' like perspective and how they're studying Patton but it never really pays off for them. Like within that like whole German subplot, if they just showed like a true key scene where Patton was defeated or he, or like they were the reasons like his own uh, ego is what brought him down. I think it would have made more sense. And that's kind of like where the social network aspect of it comes in, where it's like, it's about this figure who is arrogant, finding like establishing his way or the highway type of thing and failing at times, but also succeeding uh, despite what everyone says about him. Yeah. Um, so, so that, so like in terms of connecting everything back to what you were saying, I agree with everything. I just think like, um, and I was just trying to give like, a different perspective rather than clash of the Titans, which is a movie. I don't think I've seen since it came out in like what, 2008 it came out. There's also a r- an movie? original I- from 81. So, okay. Well, <laughs> regardless, as I, John puts his glasses closer up to his nose, <laughs> I love those movies like Uh, every um, version of those movies they're so trash (laughs) but they're like so great they're so fun they are but uh, I think what and and to kind of speed up this whole conversation because there is like there isn't much to say but there is like some a few aspects I really like I really the cinematography is one thing I don't like the art direction I actually really liked I like the settings and all the different uh, interiors that they do I think it's really well done but the most impressive thing about this movie is George C. Scott as Patton. He is he dives completely into the role. He is insane in the role. Every movement, every word, breath, eye twitch that Patton that he is that he makes his Patton is done like perfectly and and purposefully. And it's something I really appreciate. And what's fascinating about it is that uh, is that he was honored for it and it's kind of a spoiler like he wins the oscar for it but he doesn't really he doesn't accept it he doesn't like the attention but he puts so much detail into his performance that it's like why are you doing this why are you such a madman if you don't want the glory it's like he is the patent of acting in a way but wants none of the glory none of the blood none of the guts to be shown he's just like this is my work that's it uh, and it's very fascinating. It's a, it's a great performance. Every single detail of him and his character, how he carries himself, the costumes that he wears, 
is so meticulous. It's like it's my favorite part of the entire movie. He's he's amazing. And like I described in the very beginning, this film really I think really the only heart because there's not much of a you know beating emotional heart here in terms of the film itself. But I do think the main aspect of the heart and the connection of the characters is really between Patton and between Omar and Bradley played by Carl Malden. It's their relationship, the connection they have, the difference that they make. You know, I think at one point Patton even describes, you know, you have the brain, I have the guts, like the balls, basically, like the crazy ideas to to try to win battles and wars and these maneuvers. But Carl Malden knows how to play the book. He knows exactly how to be a general. And I think that also comes from one of his really amazing lines, which is about how, you know, him as a general, he, this is a job to him. You know, he got right, rose up the ranks. He became a general. This is very much a job to him while Patton it's, it's his life. Everything about war is his meaning and his purpose in life. And I think George C. Scott, he emphasizes that perfectly. He's constantly on edge and it's almost like his mind is somewhere else the entire time during the performance. And I love the way they like made his teeth all nasty, big and like yellow and his his hair, how, how he looks so different from, you know, Dr. Strangelove, which we just saw how amazing and how diverse of a performer he is just comparing these two films side by side. George C. Scott is a fascinating, fascinating guy, even outside of the film itself, which we'll definitely get to when it comes time to the best actor race. But I thought you're exactly on point. This is an amazing, amazing performance. I think part of the reason the opening is there is because it describes not not only who he is, but it visually describes who he is. His his medals, the finger, his like jewels on his fingers, you know, all these little details that combine to make this man is really brought to life through George C. Scott's performance. You know, he is so mean and angry and it, it made me like question him as a protagonist and it's interesting because at this point in time in 1970 we don't see that many conflicting protagonists in films especially in the best picture winners that we've seen you know that we don't have many protagonists that are this kind of hard at times to watch this where you almost kind of hate them in moments so I wanted to ask you that question Ben like what do you think of Patton after watching this film do you like him as a person do you think that you know, overall, this film even shouldn't have been made. Like we, sh- this film in itself glorifies him and gives him more attention than he deserves. Or should we make this because it's a part of our American history? And overall, did you just enjoy him as your main character? So it's funny because I was going to ask you that same question <laughs> as well. Um, in terms of should or shouldn't, he? I think he should make this movie. I mean, he's not. I. <laughs> It doesn't come off as controversial nowadays. I mean, this movie points out his flaws, but he was still looked at as a hero. So it's really hard to say, like, should we not make this? I mean, do I look at him differently because of this movie? Yeah, I mean, maybe I don't think he's as, as glorious as we make him out to be. I think that we like to take people, we like to make them the heroes because we need that hero narrative. Um, but maybe he wasn't as big and as grand as we thought he truly was but i don't think this movie is trying to say exactly like Patton is the person that like we're supposed to be critiquing Patton. maybe it's supposed to be a bigger thing maybe we're supposed to be critiquing american exceptionalism american patriotism maybe that's what they're trying to go for or maybe they are trying to make you critique Patton. i think it's very ambiguous and 
And I say that because this movie like gives Patton a lot of like moments of glory, a lot of moments of wow, he's really interesting and and fascinating, and he has some really bad flaws. And there there are moments where you know where he's, when he slaps the soldier, when he's you know defiant towards others, where he doesn't want to listen to the the command the people above him. You know, you're kind of like, ah, you're a rebel, and it doesn't really work out for you. But some people may think, like, yeah, you're a rebel, and that's how Americans have to do it type of thing. So he's not a character that I would say, like, now, like, oh, we have to condemn him, or he's any someone despicable. He's an interesting character, and I think the movie would be interesting of me today critiquing him. Um, but at the same time, did we need a movie about Patton? Maybe not, but we got one. And there's... I think the performance enough is enough to make it like an interesting movie, but the movie itself is not enough to make itself an interesting movie. If that makes sense. No, it, it, it definitely makes sense. I, I wanted to read this little bit from the AV club that I found that kind of talks about the way the studio kind of handled this film. Like how do we approach it? Because the final product that we have here is so in the middle of like, do I like Patton? Is Patton a good guy? Does that even matter for what the story is trying to tell you? So I want to read this little bit by Nathan Rabin from the AV Club, which says, In marketing 1970s Patton, Fox faced a formidable challenge. How do you sell the love generation on an epic biopic of a man who embodied hardline militarism? The studio's answer was to post the legendary general as an unlikely outlaw. It even planned on releasing the film as Patton. A salute to a rebel, until cooler heads prevailed. Yet it ultimately succeeded in simultaneously selling Patton to Hawks as a square as a square pro-war movie and to Doves as a brash anti-war movie. A giant Rorschach blot of a film, Patton can be read in a number of different ways, from a sly satire of a gung-ho militarism to an epic glorification of Patton's old-school mentality. Alas, the studio couldn't please everyone. In a documentary included on the two-disc patent DVD set, Oliver Stone holds the film responsible for Richard Nixon's decision to invade Cambodia and, by extension, the mass murder committed by the president. So, even a very, very well-known director like Oliver Stone is directly saying, this movie led to a lot of America's like gung-ho mentality our our passion to want to constantly be in war to constantly be fighting to constantly look at America as the greatest nation ever and I think there's definitely valid there's validity in that thought you know there's definitely an approach to this film where you can see a lot of that I mean especially opening this film directly to the audience in the middle of Vietnam and saying like we're going to we're going to kill them so bad. We're going to take all their blood and gear our tank gears. Like it is, it is like looking to you, the audience and saying like, let's go. War is good. We are the best at war. Let's keep being in war. To me, I certainly see that. I don't think it's, it's hard to directly see that, but at the same time, the film, and that's why I think there's, there's some real complexity here. The film does make you question Patton and his choices. And is he right? You know, and especially when we get to the end, was all of this worth it for Patton if he's no longer even in war, you know? So what do you think about that? Do you agree with Oliver Stone that this film is responsible for what Richard Nixon did in Cambodia and causing mass murder and genocide? Do you think they should have kept the name as Patton, a salute to a rebel? What do you think? 
Uh, I think to directly say that that was the cause is a bit of a stretch, but uh, it apparently was Nixon's one of his favorite films. So, um, man, is this the movie the reason why? I think that's such a hard thing to truly pinpoint. <laughs> but it's definitely an interesting theory to propose and to say, like, hey, like this movie, when seen by people in power... Uh, maybe make them think more than what they should. Maybe it makes them feel more gung ho and ready to go fight, uh, because of how glorious Patton makes it out to be. Um, but also, isn't that kind of like the downfall of the movie? And, it, and it's kind of like the ending speech that you know, like the all glory is fleeting, fleeting. That you may try to chase this glory that you know people used to be glorified for their their war. Uh, heroics and and what they accomplished in war, but that glory is gonna go away after like very quickly. So you're trying to chase something that is very unobtainable, and I, I think that that that's so fascinating that Stone would propose that. But I I don't know I don't I that's such a hard thing to say like for me to say like yeah definitely this is the reason why, but um. Definitely very interesting for him to say. <laughs> this is why talking and analyzing art is so fascinating. And especially when it comes to art that is entangled with politics and history like this, where, you know, we can use works of fiction to say that's exactly like what history was. You know, you can look at this film and even be in the military yourself and watch this and be like, yes, like. I love this guy. I wish he was still my general. You know, I'm going to fight even harder now in Vietnam because we got to see a screening of Patton, you know, in our in our base camp. You know what I mean? But on the other hand, there was people probably, you know, putting flowers in people's guns, you know, fighting the war and protesting against the war who watched this movie and they were like, yes, like this is why we shouldn't be in Vietnam. Like this is the perfect example of Americans thinking that they are the best thing on God's earth and that that they need to control every sort of other world power in the country or in the entire globe. So it's so funny that we can have a film that balances this so well. And I really, it's one of the amazing things that this film does. While it's not very entertaining for me, it's fascinating. It's one of those movies that I watch where I'm like, I don't know if I understood that movie. I got what it was trying to say about Patton. I like understood the journey he went on and the struggles that he felt after the war was over. And that was definitely the most interesting character aspect of it for me. But I felt like the movie finished and I was just like, what? what was I supposed to take from that movie? Like it is almost, it fenced it so well to the point where I'm like, I don't, I can't tell if this is a good thing that the movie is doing this or this is a, a bad thing. Like it's not clear enough, but it's because it seems like it really wants you as the audience member to decide for yourself, which for some people that's amazing. I love that when the film kind of leaves you open to have those decisions, but there's also a part of it that's like, what? I want a little bit more of what's happening where we're going here. Yeah, I, I completely agree that when I... It's funny because the first time I watched the movie a couple of years ago, I was... I loved it and I was very into it. And then as I was rewatching it this time, I'm like, wait, why did I like this? And I was waiting for that moment to happen. I'm like, what... When the movie ended, I was like, well, what, what was it that I liked about it? I think it was just I was just caught up in the idea of Patton and then when I came down to like okay like what's the 
having watched some of the other ones and everything before it and, and analyzing it, I was looking for that. Okay, here, where's the great moment? Where's the great moment? And it's really not there at any part of the movie. And it's like very unfortunate because there's so many opportunities to be great. And it's so hard because the messaging is so mixed where what is the theme of this movie? Is it supposed to be about war? Is it supposed to be about heroes and and being able to achieve or, or not achieve what your goal is? It's It's very convoluted and it's just masked by the idea of Patton. And here's his enigmatic historical leader that everyone should know about, but we don't know enough about it. And the movie doesn't take the extra step to make sure we know it just relies on that. You should know type of thing. Yeah, you're exactly right. I think the best way to kind of wrap up our conversation on Patton is to go over his final speech. And I know I did my terrible Patton impression do you, to, do you want to me give to do the speech. <laughs> so I would love, I don't want you to do the, the impression, even though I'd love to hear it. I want, I want the audience to be actually understanding what he's saying. So if you can read this final <laughs> speech and we can have a little talk about the ending, what we think this paragraph really means and just our final impressions. <laughs> All right. For over a thousand years, Roman conquerors returning from the wars enjoyed the honor of a triumph, a tumultuous parade. In the procession came trumpeters and musicians and strange animals from the conquered territories, together with carts laden with treasure and captured arraignments. So first, just like painting that picture of when the Roman conquerors, so John, what are you picturing there? Just like that Ben Hur sequence where uh, <laughs> where the the emperor is walking up the stairs and there's this like amazing huge crowd of people like that's what I'm picturing of the conqueror returning home and bringing back elephants drafts like whatever hasn't been seen in Rome like bringing it all to there so the conqueror rode in a tri- triumphal chariot the dazed prisoners walking in chains before him so enemies not killed people captured showing them off sometimes. His children, robed in white, stood with him in the chariot or rode the trace horses. A slave stood behind the conqueror, holding a golden crown and whispering in his ear a warning that all glory is fleeting. So the idea of that a slave is telling you, hey, buddy, your time is up. You did all this conquering, all this like war effort and everything, but it's fleeting. And you can have all of it. The, you can bring back all the exotic animals, all the treasure whatnot. Your children can have all this but this is all going to go away soon. So who do you think in Patton's case is the slave that he's referring to? Is it other military men? Is it the, the people above him even who are telling him, you know, the war's over. You saw the rebuilding or reconstruction of Germany and Italy, you know, now go on and you did your job. You did such a good job. Patton pats on the back the war is over goodbye but who do you think that slave is is it those that upper management that he sees you know i think it's i think it's him i think it's himself because the historical part of the story is that he dies shortly after being dismissed he dies in a car accident um hits his head and dies in germany while like they're still liberating and trying to figure shit out like he he dies and so he never gets that moment of to return back home to like kind of deal with the American public of how they feel about him. It's all kind of, we, we just lose this like figure 
in the war, like he like dies, but not in battle, but he dies uh, in foreign lands. And it's interesting. It's interesting because uh, the film tries to almost hint at his death, right? Like with the two fighter planes coming in, he's shooting at him with a pistol, which is one of the coolest scenes in the movie. Let's come on. It's awesome. (laughs) It's the only time he's on the front line. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. He's a crazy man. Uh, So he's shooting at the guns and then they have close to the very end, right before this scene of him leaving is the whole carriage sequence where the carriage almost crashes into him and he almost dies that way. And he's like, ha ha ha. Like, wouldn't that be funny after all this time? I just get killed by a carriage. And I, without even knowing the history until afterwards, I'm like, Oh, that was like a meta joke about how he basically did die outside of war in a non-related way. And without knowing that history and knowing that knowledge, it's like, I would, I don't get that joke. I don't understand that joke at all. And it's like, yes, that's me as the viewer who's not educated, but it's also, this is 2023. Like, I don't know that much, everything about something that happened 80 years ago, World War II. Like I can't keep every single facet of that knowledge ready in my head, ready (laughs) to go for watching Patton. You know what I mean? This movie is asking a lot from its audience. But I do love the way you analyze that and that is himself. And it is it's it's something that he probably said that's not in relation to this moment in film because obviously he didn't know he was going to die. And this is almost even again like a meta look at this person is that he he died without getting that satisfaction, without seeing, you know, the rows of the parades and really seeing what America would lead to and really the success that we would have in this country after World War II. So that is interesting now, knowing it, knowing more history after researching it and going into it, it adds a lot more to it. And it's almost in a way ending this film in a way that he feels he wasn't acknowledged enough in a way where he's like, I deserve more recognition. I am the reason why we almost won this battle. And it's almost like a selfish idolizing himself in a way in a way to end this movie but that pit fits P- Patton perfectly that's kind of the way he's always been the way Patton is talking about how he is existed in the 1800s how he's lived with the Romans you know he's 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 just straight out of his mind almost throughout this entire movie and especially as the war goes on you see that this guy is he's almost lost in his brain he like almost doesn't even know who he is he only really knows what war is so It's just an interesting commentary, and it brings me back to overall that Patton, I think, requires a lot of research. It requires more knowledge on the subject than you even have after seeing it. It requires bringing that knowledge in to further understand the meaning behind some of this. And I think that's further explained when you know about his death after the fact. And I'm glad you described that. And how funny would it have been if this movie ended with that grand speech the beautiful shots of the windmill and his dog willie the bull terrier and fades to black with a beautiful patent music and then just white text comes up and it's like six months later Patton dies in a car accident in germany and that's the end of his fucking career in the military like how just ridiculous would that be it would just like kill the entire tone of the movie if it's just like yeah he's just later killed and hits his head in a car accident after all that he's getting shot at by planes like come on it's crazy. Well, I, I think what's more unbelievable is the fact that there's a sequel to this movie, a TV made sequel called <laughs> The Last Days of Patton. And it, and it has George C. Scott in it because the director, because Schaffner was like, no, we need to give him like the full scope uh, of this role, <laughs> which is just, it, it's fucking amazing. So I, it sucks that like this movie, like there's not more to say about it because it's very simple. 
here's Patton. Here's him pontificating about war, about what it means to fight. Amer- you know, again, being an American and patriotic, but doing it from a very macro, big picture, wide angle perspective. It it goes deep, but not deep enough. So there, there's probably a lot more that could be said about it, but for us, it's just how we walked away with it, where it's like, where where's the rest? There should be more. There should be a more umph to it. So we'll see. We'll talk about it as we get into the 43rd Academy Awards. The 43rd Annual Academy Awards Show. Here in the plaza of the Los Angeles Music Center, fans have been waiting since early this morning to catch a glimpse of the stars as they arrive for the award ceremony. There's Ryan O'Neill, Taylor Young, and George Siegel, versatile young actor. There's former Oscar winner Jennifer Jones as an Oscar in the Best Actress category, and General of the Army Homer N. Bradley with his wife Kitty. There's Lee Grant, nominee for Best Supporting Actress, and Maximilian Schell, nominated as producer in the foreign film category. The esteemed and multi-talented actress, Ginger Rogers. There's Jack Nicholson, also a nominee for Love Story, and Ally McGraw, Gorgeous Ally, nominated for Best Actress, escorted by her husband, Robert Evans, Paramount Studio Head. The... 43rd Academy Awards were held on April 15, 1971 at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles, California, and for the third year in a row, the show has no single host, but instead a collection of guest speakers and presentators. For the first time in 11 years, the Academy Awards were actually broadcasted by NBC. What made you do that? (laughs) The Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award went to Frank Sinatra. Instead of simply taking the award and thanking everyone, Sinatra decided to challenge the entire existence of the Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award. And let's take a listen to hear what he has to say. Ladies and gentlemen, a man who pays his dues, Frank Sinatra. This is truly an all-consuming thrill for me tonight. Uh, Over the years, I've been part of the awards wearing many different hats. Performer, MC, presenter, recipient. But this is the top of the moment of my little walk-on in life, you might say. And I've been doing a little more thinking and contemplating these days than I did 25 years ago. That's because I'm what is known in the vernacular as a retired man now. (laughs) You might have read about that in your neighborhood throwaways. (laughs) One of the things I've been thinking about is why you have to get famous to get an award for helping other people. 
I'm not being facetious about it. I've just been thinking about it. It's true, actually. If your name is John Doe, and you work night and day doing things for your helpless neighbors, what you get for your effort is tired. So Mr. and Mrs. Doe, and all of you who give of yourselves to those who carry too big a burden to make it on their own, I want you to reach out and take your share of this Gene Hirschholt Humanitarian Award. Because if I have earned it, so too have you. In fact, your way of earning it was harder than my way. Show business has made it easier for me to spread a dab of sunshine here and there. I mean, in show business, they pay quite well. And being the quiet, conservative man that I am, <laughs> I have invested a chunk of 3% and put the dividends to work in that noblest of all causes, charity toward your fellow men. It's the only investment in the world that pays 100% dividend. Anyway, it's put a great big bundle in here for me, and I'd like to thank my dear brothers and sisters of the Academy for this joyous moment. Thank you. The Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award went to Igmar Bergman. And Academy Honorary Awards went to Lillian Gish for superlative artistry and for a distinguished contribution to the progress of motion pictures and to Orson Welles for superlative artistry and versatility in the creation of motion pictures. Best Special Visual Effects went to Tora 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 from A.D. Flowers and L.B. Abbott. Tora 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 is a 1970 epic war film that dramatizes the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941. The film was nominated for five Oscars at this year's Academy Awards, including Best Cinematography and Best Film Editing. Moving on to Best Film Editing, that one went to Patton to Hugh S. Fowler. Uh, although Fowler edited only 38 movies in a 20 20-year career, all of them 20th Century Fox releases, he edited some of the greatest scenes in studio's history. Two of them involved the same actress, Marilyn Monroe, uh, for her performance of the song Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and her blown skirt scene in The Seven-Year Itch, directed by Billy Wilder from 1955. So one thing, actually, I want to say that I don't know if it should have won Patton, and one there's an, uh, a certain movie here, and that's Woodstock from Thelma Schoonmaker, you know, who is Scorsese's right-hand woman. Um, that movie, it's a documentary, but the film editing of that movie is so iconic and has been riffed on in many different ways. So if you have, have you ever seen the Woodstock documentary, John? It, I think I have, but it's been a long time. You've seen like a clip or two. Even, yeah. like, it's just very iconic with how they intersplice like different scenes and, and put them together. And they're happening at the same time. It's very interesting. There's a lot of footage, a lot of things to balance. So. Like, that's, like, a really cool editing job, but I guess Patton gets it because there's so much film. There's a long movies, a lot to balance there. But would not have been my pick. But anyways, John, moving on. Best Cinematography went to Ryan's Daughter by Freddie Young. 
The film, set between August 1970 and January 1918, tells the story of a married Irish woman who has an affair with a British officer during World War I, despite moral and political opposition from her nationalist neighbors. The movie was photographed in Super Panavision 70 by Freddie Young. And I know you're a big fan of David Lean. You haven't watched this yet, Ben, but I think it's both now on our list, especially with Freddie Young behind the camera. We've talked a bunch about Young credited with being the first cinematographer I think to ever shoot in a helicopter if I remember correctly what a great career for Freddie Young continues to get Oscars and we also have Patton here which I mentioned how much I love the cinematography of Patton you didn't I don't think you really described too much is it just too stale for you too just wide open too not enough movement exactly I just don't think there's enough there's not that many interesting angles, shot variations. I think it's very static for the most part and too wide uh, for me. Um, so that's why I wouldn't have picked it, but I'm sure Ryan's daughter looks amazing. And John, did you see the clip for this award being presented? Because James Earl Jones presented this and he came out wearing the sexiest like robe thing. Uh, it was amazing what, yeah, what, keep it in just, your pants back keep what a stud <laughs> i mean and this is so this is 70 so seven years seven years later he's voicing darth vader and it's just like that man's darth vader fuck yeah <laughs> moving on to best art direction went to Patton. art direction to yuri mccleary and gil parnado and set decoration to antonio matios and pierre louis thevnet such a worthy award I'm honestly, it may be the best aspect of of the film, you know, right along with the score and the cinematography for me. I I just love the art direction, just the grand battlefields that they show. You know, it's not much of like on, it's not much action, you know, battle action, but it's a lot of what I said was the aftermath of war. And that's very difficult to make look real, you know, to make it look like a battle has happened here with the special effects of the smoke, some leftover fire, you know, the bodies splayed around everywhere, the the historical accuracy of the clothing and, you know, his military garb. Really, really, really phenomenal. Moving on to best costume design went to Vittorio Nino Navarsi from for Cromwell. Best foreign language film went to Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion to Italy, and this is the fifth uh, Oscar win for Italy in the Best Foreign Language Film category, as well as uh, three honorary awards that the country received before. Best sound went to Patton, sound by Douglas Williams and Don Bassman. Ben, what did you think of the sound? That's not something that we really talked too much about at all. It's interesting because we have so much dialogue, as you described in this movie. It's so much of it is just in grand, big rooms of generals just talking back and forth. There are some action moments and scenes, but to me, that this doesn't scream this needs to be the best sound winner. You know, but what do you think? Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, unless this is getting it for the action sequences, um, then I don't really see the, the need for it to win sound, but... That's also not my call to make, but it, it could have just been a political thing that everyone was really into Patton, big movie, popular, the easy one to pick. Um, maybe Airport didn't really fit, right? Maybe Ryan's Door didn't really fit. Then you have Tora, 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 Woodstocks. So you have a war movie, Tora, 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 but Patton was the more 
was the one that everyone was picking, and Woodstock was the you know the youngins movie. So we're not going to pick that. Obviously, is probably what the Academy was thinking. So, kind of makes sense how best sound goes to Patton. Best song original for the picture went to For All We Know from Lovers and Other Strangers. Music by Fred Carlin, lyrics by Rob Royer and Jimmy Griffin. When the original song was nominated for an Academy Award, the the Carpenters were not allowed to perform it at the ceremonies they had not appeared in a film. At their request, the song was performed by British singer Petulia Clark. Richard Carpenter of Carpenters heard the song during an evening relaxation at the movies while on tour. He decided it would be ideal for the duo. It became a hit for them in 1971, reaching number three on the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart and number one for three weeks on the U.S. Easy Listening chart. Petula Clark would later perform the song in concert on February 6, 1983, in tribute to Karen Carpenter, who had died two days before. Does the Carpenters have anything to do with this song? So, Ben, I wanted to ask you. Yes, they they have. I mean, they remade the song. It's become the most famous, iconic version of this song. So much that they didn't even let them play at the original Academy Awards because their song was not the original song. So, as we always do for our best original song, Ben, I want to ask you, do we listen to the original version or the Carpenters version? Well, it has to be the movie version, right? <laughs> okay, let's take a listen to that. Okay, all right. <laughs> and as we go from day to day, I'll feel you close to me. But time alone will tell. Let's take a lifetime to say I knew you well For only time will tell us so Best original score went to Let It Be. Music and lyrics by The Beatles, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. This is the only year that the category was called Best original song score. How do you feel about that, Ben? <laughs> I mean, it's the Beatles. I mean, what are we doing here? <laughs> um, yeah, it's really cool that they won the award. I mean, they broke up a year before this, so it's kind of funny because like Quincy Jones, uh, who was the composer for the ceremony, accepted the award for them. And it's like, I don't know if the Academy hoped that, well, we're going to get the Beatles to reunite to accept this reward. I mean, they were done a year before, which is incredible to think about how quickly they were like how short of a time they were here as a band the amount of music and and the impact they had um and it's great they also won an oscar but moving on to best original score that one went to love story to francis lay so i watched love story as well as one of the many films for this year's podcast but i really urge you not only to see love story i think it's a really really incredible indie film from this time or I should say slightly independent I think it was still United Artists at the time but it's definitely lower budget than the rest of the films is what I'm trying to say but Ben as someone who loves music love story this score is so so good it's one of those songs or it's one of the scores that uses the theme and kind of like changes it and 
basically kind of repeats the theme in different ways and adjusts it over throughout the entire movie. And it basically uses the same kind of similar song in the theme. I just, it's one of those songs, as soon as you hear it, you, you will not get it stuck in your head. In fact, I kept listening to this score and listening to this song. I was just like walking around my house singing it. And my aunt was like, why are you singing the theme from Love Story? Like, have you even seen that movie? It's from 1970. I was like, I have in fact seen Love Story. And it is <laughs> so sad because <laughs> she was also saying like, why are you singing this extremely depressing song? It's amazing. It's a great movie. Go check out Love Story or just listen to the score on Spotify. It's great. Best short subject cartoons went to Nick Basusto for Is It Always Right to Be Right? Best live action short subject went to The Resurrection of Bronco Billy to John Longnecker. Best documentary short subject went to Joseph Strick for Interviews with My Live Veterans. Best documentary feature went to Woodstock to Michael Wadley. The documentary film Woodstock garnered three Oscar nominations, making it the most nominated documentary film in Oscar history, and that was later tied by Flea uh, 51 years later at, well, I guess, the twenty, the 2020 Academy Awards. But, <laughs> right? Was that That's when Flea came out. Oh, shit. The 94th Academy Awards, yeah. Yeah. I don't know what year that was. Yeah, the... Yeah, twenty. That was last. That was that was last, yeah, last year. That was the, yeah. the 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 heat exactly, show not we just be named physical yeah. altercation. Oh yes, of course, of course. Yeah, we don't name it by what it was actually called. <laughs> Best screenplay based on material from another medium went to Mash Ring Lardner Jr. based on the novel by Richard Hooker. Best story and screenplay based on factual material or material not previously published or produced. Just say adapted screenplay. Jesus. Oh. <laughs> uh, wait, that is so. That is such a weird <laughs> title. It just gets story and more and more complicated. Based, <laughs> uh, based on factual or material not previously published or produced. So stuff that's based on stuff, but it hasn't been made before, <laughs> but has been discussed. Screenplay. <laughs> Went to Patton. Uh, to Francis Ford Coppola and Edmund H. North. Uh, so although Coppola and North are credited as co-writers, they never actually worked together and actually never even met each other until they were collecting their awards. Um, it's very strange. It sounds like Coppola had written a, a draft of the screenplay. They had North like ready to go, and they were like, nah, let's look at Coppola's, and they mishmashed the two. Um, but most people forget how great of a writer Coppola was and is. Uh, and this was showcased well in Paramount Plus's The Offer, which is all about the making of The Godfather and John. If you watch the intro to the Oscars for this year, you will see one Ally McGraw get introduced for a second, and then they go, and her husband, Robert Evans. And I was like, <laughs> Bob Evans, a Paramount? Oh my yep. God. <laughs> And in the offer, what is one of the earlier episodes is Bob Evans advocating for Love Story. Like, this is the movie that's going to change Paramount. This is like a real cutthroat movie that's, you know, independent and to your heart. You know what I mean? I think I previously said it was United Artists, but I know in my head it's Paramount. So crazy man. Crazy man over here. Too much knowledge floating around this little cesspool. <laughs> All right. 
got too much knowledge. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the excuse we're going to use now. There's too much going on up here for it to be real or factual. Best supporting actress went to Helen Hayes from Airport as Ada Quonset. Quonset? I've seen this movie, so I should know her name, but. This is Hayes' first Oscar nomination and win, but she would go on to win Best Actress the following year for The Sin of Madeline Claudette. Now, Ben, I have seen the I uh, have seen Airport, which at the time seemed to be like the biggest movie of the year. Super big stacked cast, you know, tons of big stars. If someone were to ask you after seeing Airport, who is the big star in this movie? You know, who is the star that you think would get an Oscar? You would think like Dean Martin. He's like the main kind of lead here. You got Burt Lancaster, also the second kind of main lead. Nope. It's the stowaway old lady who is played by Helen Hayes, who is just the goofiest plot line in this movie, Ben. You got to like just see this movie and just see how ridiculous it is because it's all over the place. But essentially, this woman is like a known stowaway on planes she'll just like hop on and sneak her way into planes to just (laughs) to get to fly wherever she wants and since it's like the late 60s and there's like such poor security in the airport she just gets away with it over and over again to the point where like the airport is finally like putting their foot down and trying to stop her once and for all it's so ridiculous it's got like a little bit of like die hard two mixed in there with like plane issues and stuff it is such a wacky movie Maybe like the worst technical of the best picture nominations this year, but maybe we'll we'll uh, hint on that a little bit later once we get to that category. Moving on to best supporting actor, that one went to John Mills for Ryan's daughter as Michael. This is Mills's first and only nomination and Oscar win. Uh, John Mills is a British actor who appeared in more than one hundred motion pictures and dozens of stage plays and television programs during a career that spans some seven decades. His ability to portray the, quote, every man, characters sincerely and believably, especially humble, decent military officers, endeared him to audiences and made him one of Britain's best-loved performers. Best Actress went to Glenda Jackson for Women in Love as Gundren Brangwen. Glenda Jackson has won the Academy Award for Best Actress twice for her role in Women in Love and A Touch of Class in 1973, and she was also nominated another two times for Sunday, Bloody Sunday, and Hida. Jackson became the first performer to win an Academy Award for Best Actress for a role in which she appeared significantly nude, and she's the only British member of Parliament to win an Oscar. Both of those together, I just like thought they were the weirdest combination. Appears significantly nude is mainly one of the first, if not the first actress, best actress winner to be very nude in a film and also happens to be a member of the British Parliament. Damn, (laughs) you go, Glenda Jackson. Powerful. Sometimes happens that way. Yeah. (laughs) Moving on to best actor went to George C. Scott for Patton as General George S. Patton. Uh, This is Scott's third of four total Oscar nominations as he was previously nominated for Anatomy of a Murder in 1960 and and The Hustler from 62, and then later in 1973 for The Hospital. So George C. Scott became the first actor to refuse an Oscar, having previously protested his nomination for Best Supporting Actor for The Hustler 
and quoted as saying that the Academy Awards were a two-hour meet parade, a public display with contrived suspense for economic reasons. So we have Scott, one, declining the Oscar and then calling the Academy Awards a two-hour meet parade. Uh, John, what do you think about those comments from uh, George C. Scott? It's fascinating. Right from the jump, it's it's just fascinating because, you know, we've had people not attend the show. We've had people get the awards later on because they're busy. We've had people, you know, talk down about the Oscars. I don't know up until this point have we seen such like blatant disregard to the Academy Awards. And it's funny. I don't if you're listening to this, you might be like, well, you got to defend them. You really got to go for it and, and fight it. But for me, it's. It's really interesting when you look at George C. Scott, who at this point in time is a very successful actor. And I was watching an interview with him where he's much older. He's, I think he's in his 80s at this point. And he's talking about how he grinded for the first seven years of his career. You know, he was basically paid nothing. He was acting just because he loved to act. And it took him like seven years of just kind of grinding until he got a big role, which kind of then continued and, and moved his career forward. So it's funny to think, and if you went back in time and you're like, well, George C. Scott, like if you were asked to be at the Oscars to even then win Best Actor, like you would be so excited. There's just no way. Maybe I'm wrong. And he was always like this from the start, you know, the way he looked at things. But I think it's just really easy to be a very successful actor and say, you know, I don't believe in this. This is ridiculous. Why are we doing this? We're just doing this for more attention to give each other awards, you know, and he seems to be very much like an actor's actor, the way he's talked about really losing himself in these characters because that was his form of therapy. It almost seemed like George C. Scott hated who he was and not just like I hate myself because of the things I do, the people I am. I think he just hated being a human, really. He liked to pretend and be these different people because it felt like that was his true self, you know, playing make pretend and being an actor. So it's funny because we obviously look at Hollywood in such a different way because Ben and I come from without outside of the framework of what Hollywood is. It's so different for us as fans who love the Oscars, who grow up like looking at this fun, glamorous nights, this fun, glamorous night. And we got to see the stars, you know, in a different way that we weren't used to seeing. And obviously for us, we would love to be honored to go to the Oscars, let alone be nominated for something like Best Actor, you know. And we know that there's plenty of people in the industry that love the Oscars and it means so much for them. So it's funny to hear an actor say this because it's almost like, oh, like you hold your you gasp because you're like, you're not supposed to say that. Like, that's the biggest night of the year for a lot of people when it comes to Hollywood and the film industry. So, Ben, what do you think overall of that, of his opinions? Do they matter overall? Does this set a precedence for best actors? You know, is this something that you would ever even consider yourself doing if you were nominated for best actor, Ben? Um, so I don't think it's funny you ask, like, well, what does it mean? Because we've had 60 or 50 more years of the Oscars and best actor winners and none of them ever really referenced Scott uh, to decline the award or continue that tradition of like boycotting it. Um, so I don't think Scott was wrong to uh, to go against this to say that's just a meat parade. I think that, in fact, it's quite accurate. But that's his decision to not accept it. It's his decision to not accept a craft award, 
or any award from his peers. So um, I think it's totally fine for him to do it. Would I do it? Probably not unless there was some <laughs> big political thing going on. Unless like everyone was boycotting it, then I would join in and protest. But I don't think I would boycott it just because cause I don't agree necessarily that the award is like kind of meaningless or that it it's for economic reasons. I think this movie or the awards end up serving a, a purpose, but I also see where Scott's coming from. So I'm not going to bash him. I think it's awesome that he did this and that he, and then he's refusing him and putting his foot down. Um, but I, th- I don't think necessarily that he's a hundred percent right on it. I think this is a good time to kind of, you know, we're 43 episodes in now. It's kind of crazy to even say that out loud, but I think it's a good time to reapproach the conversation and we can use it in this context where he is saying, quote, a two hour meat parade, a public display with contrived suspense for economic reasons. And let's break that down. So a two hour meat parade. He's just saying the existence of walking around, being an actor to him. He's acknowledging this is not what an actor does. So to my mind, it's like, did George C. Scott never promote his movies? Did he never go on press tours? Did he never talk to interviewers? He definitely did. You know, he played the game to a degree, probably. He was probably one of those actors like a Bruce Willis who was maybe not going to hide how he hated journalism, how he hated, you know, that side of Hollywood. But that's fair. I think it's fair to say, like, as an actor, I just want to act, tell stories, be a performer, find the truth and meaning of things. That's fair to say it's a two-hour meat parade, whatever. If that's how you feel, that's how you feel. A public display with contrived suspense for economic reasons. I think that's also <laughs> fair to say because, you know, it is contrived because a lot of what we've seen, especially in past years, it's a pay to be nominated. I think you can argue whether it's a pay to win system. I think there's valid reasoning on both sides. But it's also for economic reasons because we know, especially now in the 70s, we haven't had that much of a fall off. In fact, we're still rising in terms of audience that are watching the Academy Awards. So it's true. This pushes films. It pushes, you know, Americans, cinema lovers to go out and watch these films, to be reminded of these films, to see your favorite actors and actresses. So I don't think he's saying anything incorrectly, like you said, but I thought it would be fun for us to just stop here a minute and just talk about really why we love the Oscars and I think part of it is these reasoning you know like I think some actors know this some don't really care to acknowledge it but it's part of the fun is seeing them out there and seeing each other you know collaborate you know with an actor where you're like these two have never been a movie but we get to see them like talk to each other or like have a joke together or present an award together we're, we're still getting a fun insight to Hollywood even now in 2023 or 2022 or 2023, where we just had the most recent Oscars in March. But I wanted to ask you, Ben, you know, why why are we here? Why are we even talking about the Academy Awards if there are people out here like George C. Scott who just dismiss it as a two-hour meat parade? You know, what does the Oscars mean to you after 43 episodes of Doing Worthy? I don't think we get this deep right now. Uh, <laughs> I think... Uh, but that's the thing is that I appreciate for what it is. I appreciate the history of Hollywood and using the Oscars to document it that way, which I'm sure Scott appreciate appreciates the, the medium of filmmaking. And it's just different ways of approaching that appreciation of it that I, we've had this podcast, we've had all these discussions, all this research and looking back on it. And we've had a lot of fun of diving in and learning about it. And so 
to me, it holds that importance. And for Scott, who is in the industry as a filmmaker who is getting awarded, you know, that's probably his way of dealing with the fame and the limelight and the attention of just pushing it away. Now, would I push it away? No, but I also respect like his, like why he would want to do that. Um, but I don't think it changes any of my convictions or how I feel about the Oscars. I love the Oscars. I think it's a fun time. Uh, I get to, I get my enjoyment out of it. And as I guess, as long as I get it, I don't care if others don't want it. (laughs) Absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I think to end this kind of George C. Scott conversation, I think, I think George C. Scott would look at what we're doing with Worthy, see our journey into history, and much like Patton's love and obsession of history and our love obsession of film history, we're we're doing something more than just, you know, celebrating the Oscars. We're really going on an entire journey throughout film history and, and learning the ups and downs and learning the evolution of the techniques and evolution of storytelling in this film medium. So I think George C. Scott would be proud of us, Ben. But let's move on to Best Director. <laughs> And the winner Thanks, is, George. thank you, George. Thank you, buddy. The winner for best director was Franklin J. Schaffner for for Patton. This is Schaffner's first Oscar nomination and win. Schaffner is known for Planet of the Apes from 1968, Nicholas and Alexandra from 1971. Uh, pa- is it Papillion? I never know how to pronounce that word. Papillon? Papillion? Papillion? No, I think it's Papillon. Papillion. Papillion Papillion from 1973 and The Boys from Brazil from 1978. And he even served as a president of the Directors Guild of America between 1987 and 1989. And a fun little fact, since I'm from Pennsylvania, currently live in Pennsylvania, not too far from Lancaster. Actually, in May of 2020, the mayor of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, proclaimed Franklin Schaffner's week. He doesn't even get a day in Lancaster. He is so important in Lancaster that he gets a whole freaking week. And that was uh, in honor of his centennial birth in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He actually was born in Japan and then moved when he was a really young kid to Lancaster, PA. So a little fun, random. If you don't know Lancaster, it's a kind of like small little city. It's mainly farm. It's a lot of Amish, you know. We're, we're out here meeting iconic film directors in Amish. You know what I'm saying, Ben? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it's really cool, and it's like a cool like little connection for you and your home state and uh, close to your hometown. Um, and one of the other things I thought that was really cool about this award and the presentation of it, um, so Ryan O'Neill was setting up the presentation of it, and he brought Janet Gaynor out to the stage. So... I'm watching the clip and Ryan O'Neill's also talking about the first Oscars and seventh heaven. And I'm like, where is he going with this? And all of a sudden Janet Gaynor, I'm like, Oh my God, we haven't seen you in a hot minute. And like going back. So I thought it was really cool at this ceremony. It, it like brought back the first Academy Awards. It, it's really celebrating film. And, and there's this true step forward uh, of the Oscars since the original one. So it's really cool to see that progression and to see, Someone like Janet Gaynor, you know, 42 years later, still alive, like in that time and uh, presenting the award. So I thought it was really cool. But why not best picture for her? I don't know. But uh, still very awesome that she got to come out on stage and have another Oscar moment that was televised. Moving on to best picture. The nominees are MASH, 
love story, five easy pieces, airport, and the winner of the 43rd Academy Awards Best Picture is patent to Frank to Frank McCarthy, producer. Frank McCarthy was a retired brigadier general who served on the staff of, of General George C. Marshall during World War II, and he worked 20 years to make a film about Patton. After winning the Oscar uh, for Best Picture, McCarthy donated his uh, Academy Award to the George C. Marshall Museum at Virginia Military Institute, where it is still on display. Uh, Marshall and McCarthy were both VMI graduates, and Patton had been a student there for one year in 1903-04 before transferring to West Point which is actually near where I grew up. So Patton was near my hometown. Just tie it all back into hometown love. Anyways, John, let's move into some stats and figures about Patton. So it has a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average rating of 8.42. Top critic percentage is an 80 with an average rating of 9.5. The audience score is a 93 with the average score of a 4.4 out of 5. IMDb gives it a 7.9. Metacritic gives it a 91. It won seven total Academy Awards out of 10 nominations, so which actually matches uh, everything everywhere all at once to put that into perspective. Anyways, John, what did you give Patton? So I feel like I have to jump a little bit back and look at the entire list. And I asked Ben, uh, I think about like a week ago, and I finally did it, that we need to come up with a name. And I, I'm trying to do some research. I was trying to figure out a good name. I still don't think I've landed on it yet. So maybe we can even get it from the audience. But we need to determine a name for when you watch every nomination for the Best Picture category. I don't know if we need to have, like, Worthy in the name. I don't know if we need to, like, is it, like, a Best Picture complete, Completionist or a Worthy Completionist of 1970 or, like, the 43rd Academy Award Completionist? Like, we, there's got to be a better name. try hard. The tryhard, <laughs> the best picture tryhard. That sounds like though, like you're referring to like a movie that's trying to be a best picture almost. I don't know, yeah, I don't but know. I'm just throwing that out there. What what is the definition? What is the term for watching every best picture nomination? And it's so funny that we've gotten 43 episodes into this and we've not <laughs> like talked about that. I've never even thought that there even should be a name until very recently. I'm not sure why. And I I, I got so deep into this rabbit hole that I was just like. There's five infinity stones. Maybe the five stones could go and coordinate directly with the five nominations. And we can call it like worthy infinity. (laughs) And then I was like, no, there's 10 nominations now, John, you fucking idiot. It can't be that. That it ruined. It breaks the entire system once we hit like what? 2010 or whenever they made that role. So anyway, (laughs) what I'm trying to say is that I've seen every movie in this best picture nomination from the 43rd Academy Awards, which is MASH, Love Story. Five easy pieces, airport, and our winner, Patton. Now, the question is, is Patton, or what did I give Patton, right? Yeah, what did you give Patton first? Before I jump the gun, I gave Patton a 70. And the reason I gave it a okay. 70 is because I it felt very, very much in that range because of just how up and down this film is. Overall of it kind of being unclear of what it's trying to say, I know some aspects you didn't like it obviously like the cinematography i personally love some of those technical elements i just overall the story wasn't compelling enough you know it is a character drama that we're kind of supposed to explore his psychology along with the history of world war ii but i just don't think we go deep enough into his psychology and it's like as soon as we get 
close to like trying to analyze his psyche and it's as soon as the war is kind of coming to an end and he's trying to like justify what it's like to not be a general to not be in war that is where we get to like an interesting component of his character a really compelling struggle that he has to like and obviously there's struggles throughout that he abuses a soldier that then he has to apologize but all of those just feel like transactional events almost you know a happened b happened to lead to c and that's not a problem like i'm not looking at this film and saying there are so many issues of the of this and that it's more so overall i just don't think this movie is that much it's just not meant for me really i think if i were to spend a lot more years of my life looking into world war ii and i probably will because i really love war you know our history and wars and just our overall just struggle with constantly putting our head into fights that we probably always always shouldn't be in world war ii especially being the opposite of that a very justified war and we have a person who doesn't always seem very justified. And it's definitely a struggle to kind of watch this film at times because he's a he's he's a, like a very troubled protagonist. Someone who is funny at times, but also kind of scary and and very frightening that this was someone who had this much control in our country at one point in time. But overall, for me, I just felt like I wish we could go deeper into it. I think I think we could even remake Patton and go deeper into his psychology and maybe make a darker film. You know, I, I wonder if like Kubrick made Patton, like how how much darker would this be? How much like more would he go into his psychology and his psyche? And overall, I think 70 is pretty accurate. I think recent other films we have Oliver at a 72 I just think I enjoyed that overall story a little bit more but we also have a classic that I gave a 70 like Ben-Hur so I think putting Ben-Hur next to Patton is is fair to me and I, a lot of people look at a 70 and it's like oh it's like a C minus you're almost like failing that's awful but we have a hundred point scale here you know a 30 is an awful film a 25 is almost unwatchable you know once we get down to those really low numbers 70 to me is still a good movie it's a movie that i would recommend people to go see and to go watch but ben we'll come back to the other best picture nominations because i've been talking my brain off here ben what did you give pen i also gave it a 70 for almost the same exact reasons just <laughs> Yeah, the cinematography part. I didn't love the cinematography, but I love the acting. I thought that there is interesting things here, but it doesn't go full throttle. I think that there's too many scenes that are repetitive, that have just boring dialogue that, well, I shouldn't say it's boring dialogue. It's dialogue that after a minute or so, you're like, okay, and what's the point? Where are we trying to get to? And it just never gets it going. It's all set up, but never a complete you know, thing. And it, it never... It never does what I think it, it was meant and set out to do. Um, I think that uh, what what movie do you just compare it to that I thought was actually a very uh, interesting way to put it. Um, but anyways, it's uh, it's not my favorite movie now. I thought I loved it before and I had a much higher score, but I had to knock it down to the seventy just because it wasn't enough. Like there just was not enough there to keep me entertained, to keep me as enthralled in it. Um, which is kind of unfortunate, um, but is what it is. I think Kubrick would have made a kick-ass version of it. I mean, I, I've actually thought the entire time of watching it, of of looking at this movie, researching it, I'm like, man, Kubrick would have done a, a sick job with this movie and really brought out an interesting perspective on the character, but we do not have that. So, John, that does lead me to that question of, is Pat worthy of the Academy Award for Best Picture of 1970? 
Well, Ben, glad you glad you sent me up for this question because, okay. as I discussed, I've seen every best picture this year, every nomination, I should say, from this year. And when we look at these, because I don't know if this has even ever happened yet on this show, it'll happen more often as we get closer and closer into the future. But we have a lot of interesting movies this year, but it's not a year where we see another movie on this list and you scream out like it has to be that it has to be that that is like the masterpiece that should have won. I think some of you might yell at me for saying that because I think some people look at five easy pieces as being a masterpiece. I think it's a wonderful coming of age film, a lost American tale, especially after Midnight Cowboy and Easy Rider. The year before, I think Five Easy Pieces, especially the connection to Easy Rider, Jack Nicholson, the lead character of Five Easy Pieces, is a great continuation of the American dream, the ideology of what is what it what it means to be a working class American, what does it mean to be a wealthy upper class American and how Sometimes you can be both in a way. So I think it's a very fascinating movie, a really beautiful movie. But let's keep going on. We have Love Story as we talked about it. You know, we have Bob Evans talking about it in The Offer. There's a lot of hype around that movie in the 70s as being a really traumatic and intense love story. As the name says, pun intended, it is a wonderful movie. And in terms of technically, it may have the most amount of mistakes. There's so much voice dubbing in this film it's crazy i think more than half of the dialogue in this movie is like all you know overdubs but all that aside it's still a very very compelling movie a really touching movie as well and a movie that is kind of ahead of its time in terms of how dark it gets um and then let's see what else we have here obviously we have mash robert altman's film which obviously continued and went on to become a great television series that our parents and many other parents out there have probably loved and adored to me mash was just like a complete mess in terms of its plot but in terms of its story its uniqueness its overall like feeling the vibe it's very a vibe movie you got all these like surgeons in the military that are in vietnam and you really follow like three main surgeons and it almost has like a uh, Corky's vibe to it. You know, it has like a, a very comedic vibe to it. A lot of really dated 70s humor. A lot of, you know, you see a naked woman because they like pull a shower curtain. You know, that kind of humor in a lot of places. It's it's pretty dated in terms of the humor now. And But I still, there's, there's really honest and beautiful cinematography. A lot of like close-up, handheld, really tight zoomed cinematography. And the film does a really great job of showing surgeons and surgeries and in what looks to be very realistic depictions of like war surgeons. That, I think, is the best part of MASH. All of these movies, I think, are worth the watch. Let's get to Airport <laughs> before I finish if Patton's worthy or not. Airport, like I described, is probably the biggest in terms of budget. I don't know that for sure. I think in terms of cast, you got Burt Lancaster, Dean Martin, two huge stars. And then we all, all already talked about Helen Hayes winning this year, but the stack cast is, is wild. When you look at the poster for airport, it's hilarious. It's like 10 different people all around the frame of the poster. It's a really goofy movie that takes place in an airport, obviously. And you see 
what is depiction of it's also based on a book i think which was a really popular book at the time in the 60s but it shows someone hijacking a plane and i think from the perspective of post 9-11 we're now over 10 years past 9-11 as americans watching airport now is just laughable dude like the level of security that they have in the airport is just it's such a joke it's also almost a three-hour movie about an airport did not need to be three hours long (laughs) but if you love burt lancaster the man he's killing it as always i love burt lancaster so much what i will say about airport before i go too long because i can really talk a lot about this movie it's one of those movies that like it's not a good movie in my opinion but it is such a funny ride and such a fun time to watch one thing about airport is that the entire like theme obviously you have the backdrop of you know the woman trying to sneak on planes you have some love affair dramas where two of the main men dean martin who's the pilot burt lancaster who's like the overall manager of the airport both of them are having issues marital issues they're not having it's really happy in their relationship literally the end of this movie spoiler if you don't want to get airport spoiled for you the end of this movie essentially is them deciding that they need to leave their wives because dean martin already has knocked up his sec his flight attendant so he basically over the course of this entire film and the threat of bombing the plane he decides like i want to be with this flight attendant instead of my wife because she's pregnant and i want to actually settle down and then on the other side, Burt Lancaster, who like loves his wife and his wife is saying how awful he is because all he does is stay at the airport and does his job. She's like, I'm leaving you. I don't like you. We can't do this relationship anymore. And he keeps fighting for it. Meanwhile, his like assistant in the airport is obsessed with him and is like constantly trying to flirt with him, even though she knows he's married. So we get to the end where his wife is finally like, we're divorced. We can't do this. And he's like, fine, that's what we have to do. Like, we'll co-parent, whatever, which, again, seems very modern for 1969. You have like this big conversation about divorce and co-parenting. That was pretty interesting. But what I'm getting to is that the end of this movie is the two main characters deciding, yeah, we did not pick right for our first marriage, but we're going to go now with this mistress and that will be best for us. And let me just say, that is literally the moral of airport. (laughs) Go check it out. Now, Ben, back to Patton, as you originally asked. Is Patton worthy? My answer to that is a very tough one. To me, I would say no. Because I really think Five Easy Pieces should have been the winner this year. I think it continues the, the trend of these... American movies that are discovering and exploring what America is, you know, what it means to be American and to explore how we're trying to come up in this new era with this war going on and with youth finally fighting back against the government. It is a really powerful and touching film. And talking about really touching films, I think Love Story is also potential of being that best picture winner. It's a movie that I think will definitely stick with me, especially when it's when I think of the opening of the film. It's really impactful and it's really beautiful. So I would overall say that Patton is not worthy, but I would never argue with someone who does say it is worthy. So Ben, is Patton worthy in your opinion? Uh, I'm going to keep it pretty short and simple. Uh, Maybe (laughs) it's worthy. I don't, I think that it has worthy qualities, but after watching the movie again and breaking it down and researching it, I don't 
Yeah, I'm just going to say no. It's not worthy. I don't know what it should have won, but this movie just doesn't do enough for me to say, like, despite how bad it is, it still is a worthy enough movie. I, I just think that there's... Could have been another one. Could have been another movie that that could have been nominated or should have been or should have won. Um, could have been one of the movies that you were just talking about. Could have been a movie that just wasn't even nominated at all. Could have been a movie that was nominated that year but wasn't nominated for best there's so many different combinations of that um but Patton for both of us to give it a 70 to not really want to spend so much time even talking about it I think just goes to show how it's not worthy at the end of the day so that's it that's Patton that's our take on the 43rd Academy Awards and the year of 1970 in film although a very brief synopsis of it maybe um, the next one's French Connection, John. So that's a very another popular one, another very iconic '70s movie. Uh, any final thoughts on Patton or first thoughts on the French Connection? Ben, let me just tell you, when I find you and you're just a puddle of freaking goo, you know that I'm gonna stick my hands in that freaking goo and remember my best friend Ben. Stick your hands in my goo, John. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Anyways, that's that's it. That's the show. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And, and this, this is, is worthy. worthy. We've been told about these wonder weapons the Germans were working on. Long-range rockets, push-button bombing, weapons that don't need soldiers. Wonder weapons. Thank God I don't see the wonder in them. Killing without heroics, nothing is glorified, nothing is reaffirmed. No heroes, no cowards, no troops. No generals. Only those who are left alive and those who are left dead. I'm glad I won't live to see it. Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com. <laughs>